Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm a marathoner, coach, and answer seeker. When I first started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. And now I'm here to answer all your running questions about anything that you might want to know. If you're a new runner or you've been doing this for a long time, there's always something more to learn about running. So let's get started. My guest this week is Melissa Lodge. Melissa is a doctoral candidate studying relative energy deficiency in sport in endurance athletes, specifically female endurance athletes. She is also an elite runner and the founder of the Fed Collaborative Instagram account, which I find an amazing wealth of knowledge on REDS. What is REDS or relative energy deficiency in sport? Well, that's what our episode's about today. But to give you an idea, REDS describes a syndrome of poor health and declining athletic performance that happens when athletes, like you and me, high runners, do not get enough fuel through food to support the energy demands of their daily lives and training. REDS can and does affect athletes of any gender and ability level. So if you think that REDS is something that only elites struggle with, that you can't have energy deficiency unless you're running 80 miles a week or more, Think again, because REDS is something that a lot of athletes will unfortunately be affected with, whether you're running in college or for fun at any age. And Melissa is here today to talk to us about REDS, the latest research, and the culture that is changing, but maybe not fast enough when it comes to addressing REDS in endurance athletes. Melissa, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here. Thanks for having me. So I'm super excited to talk to you today, and I've been wanting to talk to you for a while, and now I finally get the chance, but let's introduce our listeners to you. Tell us who you are, how'd you become a runner, and what do you do? Yeah, great question. Uh, Well, first off, my name's Melissa Lodge, but you can call me Mel. Um, I am a PhD student. Um, I am an elite runner, um, and I also am a REDS researcher. I'm sure we'll talk a lot about this today. So um, off the top, REDS stands for Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. Um, so I focus on that in my research, and I particularly work through the lens of female athlete physiology. So um, I'm sure that we'll get the chance to dive into that a little bit more today. And then my story as a runner was most runners get into it, right, because they played a lot of sports growing up, and um, I really liked enjoyed soccer and found that I actually wasn't too good at all the things that soccer requires you to be good at. And I mostly just ran up and down the field very fast. Um, So eventually when my older sisters picked up cross country and I started to realize, oh, I'm not so good at this soccer thing. um, I was already running track in high school and eventually, you know, wore myself down and and started running cross country my junior year. Um, I ran in college. I went to Bryant University for my undergrad and then had the opportunity to run with the Syracuse women during my graduate program. So that was, that was really amazing. Um, and still run competitively today. And for my guests who are, you know, practitioners, healthcare professionals, researchers in this space, there is usually like a, oh, and I do this because I have a personal connection to the thing that I do. Um, was there a catalyst for why you decided to become a REDS researcher? Definitely. Yeah. You often hear the phrase thrown around in research that research is me-search. Um, so like you said, a lot of people get into this line of work because 
something they're passionate about. And sometimes that stems from a deeply personal experience. And in my case, that was absolutely true. Um, in high school, I suffered um, from a variety of stress fractures and high risk stress fractures at that. Um, at the time, we knew what the condition now today that we'll talk a lot about is REDS um, was previously coined by the ACSM as the FEMA athlete triad. So it was the interrelationship between low bone mineral density, um, under fueling or low energy availability with or without disordered eating, um, as well as menstrual dysfunction. So as you can imagine, as a young athlete growing up in the sport, um, there was some unintentional and intentional, unfortunately, disordered eating behaviors that I was suffering from. And as a result, my body, you know, wore down and my, my bones suffered the consequence. And um, as a result of that treatment, I ended up growing out, growing up just outside of Boston. I was so lucky that the doctor that I was referred to was Dr. Kate Ackerman. Um, she works at and still works at the FEMA athlete program at Boston Children's Hospital. Um, she's a world-renowned clinician, researcher, pioneer in, in women's sports research. Um, and I just walked into her office, happened to be her patient, um, and learned about these conditions for the very first time. And she saw something in me that she sees in a lot of her patients, which was this interrelationship that there's probably something else going on besides just a lack of um, understanding of these conditions and that there was something more pathological. Um, so that being said, she was really some of the, one of the first people that set off these alarm bells and educated me on these conditions and the consequences of them. And we have a longstanding relationship. I actually work with her more in a professional capacity today, but throughout high school and throughout college, I was seeing her through for a variety of injuries. I've unfortunately had seven bone stress injuries um, in my career. So, you know, I know that I struggled with it. I saw it in my teammates. Um, and it was just something that as, as I learned more information, I learned that sometimes more information doesn't always help correct behavior. And sometimes it does. So I kind of wanted to be a better catalyst for this intervention that we definitely desperately need in women's sports. So talk to us about what REDS is. Like you said, it was uh, previously called the female athlete triad. That's sexist. Obviously men can have REDS too, but talk to us about what it is and, and the evolution of how we're understanding that can affect men and women. Yeah, definitely. So I'll actually start with the evolution piece here where um, since I just talked about the female athlete triad, it's a nice parlay into, you know, what we know as today being reds. Um, there, a little bit of back, background is in 1992, the American College of Sports Medicine or ACSM coined the term female athlete triad. They were noticing this relationship that I previously discussed of bone health, menstrual dysfunction and fueling or energy availability being highly correlated and highly connected. And now we know that the menstrual dysfunction is causing some of the low bone density issues. Um, that being said, after a lot of that seminal work was being done, such important work, still very relevant today, the International Olympic Committee formed a consensus group that was recognizing low energy availability has so many different consequences beyond just bone health and reproductive function. 
And as you mentioned, it affects male and female athletes. It's highly prevalent in female athletes, but it's still relevant for male, male athletes as well. And they, they notice that low energy availability, and I'll pause and explain exactly what that is, um, is a mismatch of dietary energy intake and energy expenditure from exercise. So then you're left with the energy available to perform the body's total physiological needs. So this is stuff like breathing um, and metabolism, things that you know you might not think about that your body needs energy, whether or not you're just laying down all day or teaching classes, going on a run, so on and so forth. Um, so if those energy needs aren't being met, what your body's going to do is going to pull from those resources, those physiological processes and start shutting things down. Um, so as a result of the low energy availability, you see disruption to various body systems. You see certain signs and symptoms that something's going wrong, right? And the most recent consensus statement on REDS actually published new health and performance conceptual models. So it used to be nice and tidy. There was 10 proposed health consequences of, of low energy availability, and there's 10 performance consequences. Um, now the numbers have shifted slightly. Um, I won't go through all of them, but to name a couple health consequences that are really paramount in this population, especially of runners, um, you still see the impaired reproductive function, the impaired bone health, but then we see things like impaired energy metabolism, um, reduced immunity, urinary incontinence was added in the 2023 consensus statement, and then things like uh, impaired neurocognitive function, mental health issues, sleep disturbances, reduced skeletal muscle function, all of these things, right? Um, very, very important stuff. But they also have the performance uh, consequences, which often hook athletes or coaches. This is something that we can really cling on to and use as a carrot um, because sometimes we're not even getting athletes into the office, into the doctor's refer to multidisciplinary teams until they start suffering from um, performance consequences of REDS. Um, things like uh, decreased recovery or um, decreased training response. So they're like not responding the same way to training as they typically would, or as they would um, compare to a teammate. Uh, they have decreased endurance performance, even power performance. And then coming back to like that injury um, perspective, decreased athlete availability. So you see things like athletes not being able to complete their training, having to take unplanned or unscheduled days off from training. Um, and we know in running that those days are really important. So the more days that you can not miss, the better your performance outcomes are going to be. So some of this is like a messy tangled web, but all in all, we know that if we're supporting our like energy systems and our body systems through optimal energy availability that will be in a good place that will be supporting our health, our well-being, our performance, all of those things. One of the most challenging things it seems to me like as a as a regular person is that hearing this constellation of possible symptoms of this thing and also thinking yeah, but you know, sometimes you just have a bad night of sleep or some, you know, or maybe your kids are bringing home every illness from school, like tangle, you know, teasing out when is it like, 
quote unquote normal versus when does it become, hey, there's there there's too many coincidences going on here. Because unfortunately, I think for a lot of a lot of runners, we accept in our normal lives a relatively high level of discomfort. Like think about what our sport requires. And we're like, yeah, I mean, you know, I've been sleeping really badly and I'm getting sick all the time, but I guess that's normal because of XYZ. Definitely. And I I would be remiss to say that that's not a incredibly uh, difficult challenge to navigate as an individual, as a runner, but often for the clinicians themselves and for researchers. We struggle to, to categorize this um, regularly and figuring out the best ways to do so. Um, so that being said, if there are is there is this constellation of signs and symptoms, or you're starting to notice some of these consequences. The best thing that you can do, especially before seeing somebody like a physician or another member of a multidisciplinary treatment team, is start to note, like, when did you get bad sleep or when did you have to take an unplanned or missed day off? And I know that sounds silly, like, um, you know it when it's happening, but if you don't write it down, I'm... I'm a victim of this. If I don't write it down, I'm gonna forget it. So like, if you ask me like, oh, did you sleep well on Tuesday? I'm like, what day is it today? Um, So really, you know, not in a compulsive or obsessive way, but if you can make notes of this, maybe in your training log, or if you're communicating with your coach via text or email, like you can note some of these things so that you at least have evidence of maybe how long the sleep disturbances have been happening or that you've gotten sick with an upper respiratory tract infection like several times this month. Um, That is a really helpful way of assessing like how many of these consequences or signs are present. Um, Getting regular blood work, things like that, those would be really important things, not only when you're feeling poorly, but oftentimes you don't have a good profile of some of your your blood markers when you're feeling good. So if you can have a healthy baseline as well, that's always a nice checkpoint to see like, okay, well, my levels are are lower, much lower than they are when I'm training, when I'm feeling good, when I'm not having any of these complications. So if that is a a resource that's available to you, like that would be a really good place to start. Um, And then additionally, when you do work with somebody like a sports dietitian or a registered dietitian who is familiar and trained with conditions of eating disorders, those are really great resources for people who might be struggling with REDS. Um, they could take a look alongside of you. I often don't recommend that an athlete does this by themselves um, because assessing and recording your food intake in your training can become very obsessive very quickly. And that's one of the challenges with REDS. So we don't want to feed into some of those pathological or negative behaviors. Um, But they might be able to better understand your energy needs and walk you through and help educate you on an individual level where you're maybe missing the mark and how you could improve not only your total energy needs, but things like carbohydrates and protein and fat. Um, there is a, an equation to calculate energy availability, but everyone's estimates of their total energy intake can be very off. And it's really hard to estimate some of the workouts that we do, especially once we get into like the anaerobic systems, our watches and things that try to calculate caloric expenditure are, are wildly off sometimes. So 
Um, it is a good place to start, but that's why I also recommend doing it with the guidance of, uh, of a specialist. Um, and then the thresholds that we have based off of the literature are also something that we're continually updating and they're more so used as a guide now more than they used to be. They used to be like these threshold cutoffs that we stuck to and we used to define low energy availability. But now we see people have varying degrees of consequences and signs and symptoms based off of not only the severity, but the duration of low energy availability. So all of these things do compound. So definitely makes it challenging, which is why if you are concerned that I would definitely start reaching out to multidisciplinary um, specialists, registered dietitians, physicians, if it's hard to identify this in yourself, but if there's some sort of mental health issue or comorbidity, a mental health specialist is really helpful to bring online to help resolve some of these issues. But it is a multimodal disease and it is so hard to tease out whether or not it's one thing versus another. And that's where a physician can come in and help, you know, um, exclude other conditions, other diagnoses, because the other thing that we would hate to do is think that we have reds and try to be treating that. And it's not that, and actually maybe it's something else. Like it's another thing causing menstrual disturbances, especially in our female athletes. And there would be a different treatment plan for that. So we definitely want to make sure that we're keeping track of our symptoms, that we're, that we're reaching out to people who have the expertise to make sure that they can get tests and check in and do regular blood work and things like that. Right. So, um, the more people you have on your team, the better off you might be because it's really challenging to navigate that by yourself. I will also say knowing runners as a population, we tend to be, uh, I would say a little bit absolute in our thinking. Uh, and I'm glad that you declined to talk about the formula for calculate energy availability because, you know, so often in the work that I do as a coach and a running educator is everybody wants the black and white answer. How much, how far, how exactly this, that, and like, well, it's, it's a little more complicated than that because I think when, you know, some people are probably listening to this episode going, well, why doesn't you just tell me exactly how much you need to eat so I don't get reds? It's like, well, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Definitely. And there's also in, as part of the equation, which I, I do, I'm mindful about when and where to present that equation. Um, just because you don't want people to take it and run with it. You kind of want to make sure that it stays in the hands of people who know what to do with it how to calculate it, how to not be so absolute. Um, But in theory, if we really want to get a good picture as to what the energy availability targets are for a particular athlete, we do need to have an estimate of their fat-free mass. And some of that is done through body composition testing, or you could estimate it. But either way, there's going to be some error with those measurements, and there's going to be some potential for like, stress or anxiety around that information. So again, it's really important that we put that information in the right people's hands and that we're not so black and white about what that means because our fueling needs change day to day. Our training changes day to day. Seasons of life are different. Um, So it really is important to 
make sure that we're keeping that top of mind. Um, I know that it's challenging and we don't want to have to think about this all the time. It can be overwhelming, but that's why I think it can be helpful sometimes to bring on other people like a sports dietitian who can give you targets and give you some ideas about how to hit those targets and um, making sure that you're getting what you want out of it. Right. So like sometimes you see dietitians providing like breakfast options or lunch options or, or like this is what 20 grams of protein looks like. And so when I see that it's, it's often a way to translate some of this very basic information for people who like, what if you don't like rice? What if you'd rather have pasta? Like, this is what it should look like for you. And I'm not going to tell an athlete that they have to eat this one thing. I want them to tell me what things do they enjoy? What foods do they want to include? What cultural like considerations are very important to them? And how can we work that into the equation so that they're just living their life and actually we're taking some of that mental load off of them and they're not constantly calculating. They're not, you know, plugging anything into an, an equation or an app or anything like that. And we're just making sure that they feel confident about the decisions that they're making and that we're taking care of any issues that if they know what the, the goals and requirements are, if they're not able to hit them potentially due to some disordered eating behaviors or some mental health issues like that we are treating that as well because that is paramount to a lot of um, people's treatment with threats to our nation waiting around every corner adaptability is more important than ever when conditions change without notice quick strategic thinking is crucial and with obstacles consistently impending determination is essential in overcoming them It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I want to talk about the ways that, I want to say culturally, um, or just in society, the way that we as runners, and I'll be, I think more specifically focusing on the endurance athlete community, which is very body composition focused. Something I don't spend a lot of time there anymore, but I used to hang out on, not hang out on let's run message boards, but I used to, you know, read those message boards as toxic as they were and obviously still are. And I'll never forget a couple of years ago, um, I was reading a thread that Jordan Hasse had, had given an interview and a fabulous, but injury plagued runner um, in her career, she gave an interview and said something about, you know, I'm, I'm eating about 3000 calories a day. And the the message board thread was like, awful, awful in response to her. There's no way she could be eating that much. That's an insane amount of food. She's so tiny. Like if she keeps that up, she's going to get slow. And we were talking about a, you know, world-class, right? Distance runner, probably running, you know, 11 to 14 sessions a week, you know, lifting, doing mobility, sleeping, like in retrospect, that's not crazy. Right. But the way that the people, that people reacted to that was like, it was the worst thing in the world. And I'm assuming it was probably men, um, who are reacting because that's who tends to hang out on those boards, I think. But that 
that specific thing has stuck with me for all of these years at first because I was like oh my god like how can she eat that much and and you know and then now I'm like oh my god like go girl like yeah how could people treat her respond in that way and I think that really encapsulates in a nutshell both sides of the coin that we're dealing with when it comes to the way that we talk about fueling and energy and food as endurance athletes in this messy conversation about body composition as well. I absolutely agree. I, I didn't see that, that board. It doesn't surprise me. I think if, um, if we all saw that we would be able to inject some of our personal experience into that. Like we can all see something that we've been through in that message board. Um, and it, and it brings up this other side of it where like we've, we talk a lot about, the comments on women's bodies and sports. And so I think that that's a message that people understand is a inappropriate and B is improving and it has ways to, to go, but we shouldn't really be commenting on women's bodies. That should be a conversation between their physician and the athlete themselves, whether or not too big, too small in between doesn't matter. It's something that we shouldn't be commenting on. Um, and if there is concern, there is a way to broach that subject that is professional and appropriate and, you know, doesn't isolate the athlete themselves, um, who's a big part of that conversation. Um, but as far as the uh, energy intake goes, that's a more uh, common thing that I've seen in recent years where people are willing to not only comment on people's bodies but they're willing to comment on the way that they're fueling themselves and what they put in their body. And I'm, I'm always curious about like what that brings up for people and what that means for the person commenting on what people are eating, whether or not it's quantity or like content. Um, because honestly, like we won't, we would need to know all of Jordan's information to understand is 3000 too little? Is it too much? Is it perfect? Um, and the people who are probably commenting on that aren't the people who know that. Um, and it's really great to have women role models who are fueling properly, who are being successful in their respective sports and who are making sure that like they're checking the boxes. Um, and that's where like yeah, as a, as a running culture, I think that we skew towards this, like, um, how do you say like health promoting or like, I would say health promoting and big giant quotation marks. <laughs> yes, definitely. Giant quotation marks are like health seeking behaviors. And it's, and it's definitely, if you've heard of the condition of orthorexia, it's definitely like orthorexic tendencies where there's this like obsession with being healthy to the extent where it's no longer healthy. Um, and I think that you see that a lot when people comment on and like on other people's energy intake. Um, definitely some people have no understanding of like, A, how much energy is required to do the training that a lot of professional athletes do, let alone the everyday runner. We all need the appropriate amount of fuel for the activities that we're doing. And some of that might vary but it's still a lot more than a lot of people are willing to, you know, give credit to. Um, and then on top of that, it's, it's how people are hitting those benchmarks is up to them. And it does not matter if they want to indulge here or, you know, have 
two breakfasts, one before, one after training, or they'd rather do like a morning snack to break their fast. So they're not going into their training fasted, but then they have like their bigger breakfast. They're more like energy dense breakfast after training or people who like have a second dinner versus have dinner and dessert. It's just like, however people can hit their own targets is up to them. And if they need help reaching those targets, then that's where that's the individual conversation with them and their registered dietitian. Because I'm a, I'm a big proponent of and fan of my registered dietitian friends who are the only people who are allowed to provide individual recommendations for nutrition and fueling. Um, I can make suggestions. I can tell you what the research says. I can show you what those recommendations could look like on a plate, but I'm not the one that's allowed to clinically sit down and I'm not credentialed to sit down with you and walk you through what you're eating and then my my recommendations there they can be prescriptive about nutrition and i can be descriptive about nutrition um so i think that that's something that's really important for people to understand is if it's not between you and your health professional that is credentialed to give you that information it's hard to kind of let it roll off your back but you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt and move on because you're not their patient and that person is providing unsolicited nutrition advice and you don't have to take it. And unfortunately it's just something that I hope that improves in our culture, but you know, right now it's kind of on the individual athlete to just brush it off and and move on. And it's hard sometimes. And obviously I think, you know, a bunch of trolls on a message board commenting on a professional runner is kind of the extreme of this, but you posted a a really great post recently about, um, the effect that in, you know, the influence that teammates can have on each other and their eating behaviors and essentially how much our teammates or our running friends or our, the people we surround ourselves with can directly impact what we end up doing. And I see this even with the the athletes that I work with, like, oh, I ran with my friend who doesn't fuel and I felt awkward taking my gels or, oh, you know, whatever it is. And, she, you know, they, they don't eat breakfast after. So we didn't eat breakfast after the workout. Like it's these little things here and there that, you know, maybe you, maybe you recognize it and maybe you don't, but that seems to me because it's so subtle, a lot less obvious than like outright message board weirdness. That is a really good point. And I think it's so important to talk about because it's the sad reality that like a lot of those negative behaviors are the ones that your teammates pick up on more so than other behaviors. You know, you could have a one teammate that's under fueling that has some disordered eating tendencies, and they're definitely going to have an effect on the people around them. And whether or not, you know, you brought up some really great examples of like how you might see it in your training partners or your teammates. Um, And whether or not it's you, I'm sure that everyone has observed it. The prevalence is so high that most people have run into people with an eating disorder, disordered eating or reds on their team. Um, And I know that like, unfortunately I was that person for, for people. And I wasn't, you know, I think sometimes we think, Oh, it's going to be so overt. Like I wasn't telling people to not eat but I was not treating my body properly and people notice, like people pay attention. And I think a lot more coaches might be willing to have that individual conversation with an athlete who they're observing those behaviors in 
Um, and it's, it's a really challenging topic to broach with teammates. Um, it can feel uncomfortable, like you're saying, whether or not they're like, oh, I don't want to take my gel because it's, you know, she didn't and I feel uncomfortable. Or it's like, I think that what she's doing is wrong, but I don't know how to bring that up. Um, I think that some of those issues kind of fester because people don't want to rock the boat. People don't know how to bring up those conversations. Um, and so I think if you can kind of normalize talking about those things in your team or in your training setups, like that is a really important thing to be able to do. I also think if you can expand your circles, like especially for, for college athletes, I often recommend like, well, maybe try like rooming with some other friends or or, or people on other sports teams, because, you know, it's a very insular community and, and not everyone is at like at as high risk as we are for some of these conditions. So um, if you can observe other people's healthy behaviors, like what a blessing to be able to um, see people fueling themselves properly and engaging with exercise or their bodies in very health promoting and healthy ways. Um, and I guess, you know, it's, it's hard to say because a lot of people are trapped in this cycle and in their dealing with, you know, mental health issues where they might know what they're doing is wrong and they can't pull themselves out of it. But, um, if there is something to motivate yourself to get better, like look at your teammates and, and look at the, the effect that you could have on them positive or negative. Um, I think that it's really important that, you recognize the negative impact that you could have, but don't let that bury you. You know, like it is definitely a hard reality to face that like my negative behaviors have potentially impacted other people negatively. And I think if you weren't being overt about it, if you weren't being like that person who is eliciting these pathological behaviors, if people were just observing you, like you were going through something yourself. So I think it is important to give yourself some grace, but definitely recognize that your actions have an impact. And if that could help you through treatment and recovery to be that role model for younger girls in sport or other teammates who haven't come through a program yet, or even the people who went through the program with you, there are so many teammates that I've had who I've either seen struggle and get better or we're fine. We're perfectly healthy. And then started to have these signs and symptoms crop up and then got better. Like that is so rewarding to watch your teammate go through, uh, that process of recovery. Um, so definitely there's other motivators and there's other reasons to seek help. But I think that being that role model and being that positive influence and taking some of that negative experience and turning it into something good is so valuable for not only yourself, but your team. One of the, I think the other tricky things about people understanding how much reds, like why they should care, <laughs> um, is that I think oftentimes when we talk about energy availability and, and reds in these things and, and, and the immediately people go to, Oh, that's an eating disorder. I'm not underweight. I don't, you know, have this obviously clinical definition of an eating disorder. Um, do you have any idea of, and this is like, I we probably don't, maybe don't know this, people who are experiencing REDS 
how many of them fit the clinical definition of having an eating disorder versus people who it's legitimately entirely unintentional. Mm, really good, really good and interesting question. You you brought up two things, which is like this conversation um, around intentional versus unintentional low energy availability. So we can like tap into that first, which is there's there's been this idea around how does an athlete end up in low energy availability? And there are like these two schools of thought, which I think is more of a spectrum. Um, and I'm actually really interested in diving into this further as, as far as a research lens. Um, but for, for simplicity's sake, we often categorize people who have an unintentional um, low energy availability status as individuals who, you know, are uneducated or aren't sure of their like dietary recommendations or requirements. Um, so you see people who are, uh, not getting enough energy intake or training too much. So they have like an increased exercise energy expenditure or even a combination of those three things. Now that's how you end up in low energy availability anyways, but you might see like college freshmen who ramped up their training and weren't quite appreciative of what that meant. Um, or people who go into a competition phase of training and they're like, oh, well, my mileage is lower, but your intensity was ramped way up. Um, and that anabolic and anaerobic metabolic system requires a lot of energy. Um, and it requires a lot of carbohydrates. Um, so your fueling recommendations might change. Um, and then you get people who, you know, like we mentioned earlier, are not appreciative of just how much energy it takes to support your training and your day-to-day -day activities. Um, those unintentional underfuelers are people who would respond very well to education, like one-on-one -on -one clinical care. You would tell them what to do and they'd be like, oh, okay, that's fine. Like, I didn't know I'm going to do that now because I want to prevent these health and performance consequences. I want to make sure that I'm fueling well for training in life. Um, on the other hand, we have what we call intentional underfuelers. And this is where like my gripe with the spectrum is, well, like, is it, un is it intentional? Like they have a mental illness. Like we wouldn't say that like other people with mental illnesses are engaging in it and they're like intentional in their behaviors. It's, it's pathological really. Um, but the unintentional or the intentional underfuelers, they're people who, um, are aware that what they are doing is not sufficient, that they might be eating too little or training too much and not compensating in either direction, and they don't want to fix that. Um, these people definitely need a lot more mental support, um, and they might have trouble listening or tapping into the recommendations because it's not a matter of like, oh, I don't know that information. It's a matter of like, I don't want to make that behavior change or I can't like I am not in a place where I'm ready to deal with that um and then it brings up your next question of like well should we be saying like unintentional intentional I don't really know we do have a lot of studies that look at low energy availability risk and eating disorder disordered eating risk um in one like sample um so we do have a nice slice of like what that looks like in to make it very simple, there's definitely in all of those studies, we see that the highest prevalence of at-risk athletes is low energy availability focused. 
Then you have like slightly less, but still a unfortunately high prevalence of athletes that are at risk for disordered eating, and then slightly less for the eating disorder scales. Now, a lot of the methods like vary. So sometimes we see like risk assessment surveys. Sometimes we see proxy measures. Sometimes we see that there's actually like a psychiatrist or psychologist who can uh, categorize eating disorders based off of the DSM, um, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. Um, but all of that being said, we tend to see a lot of overlap in restrictive eating disorders or disordered eating with REDS. Um, and like I said, you know, that is definitely a challenge with this population of like, oh, I'm not bad enough in air quotes. Um, or like, I don't need help. Like I'm not air quotes that bad. Um, but it's definitely important to, to recognize that it exists along a spectrum. And just because, you know, you might not be as severe or you haven't been under fueling for as long doesn't mean that you need help. That's, I would like people to get that out of their heads because everyone needs that support and everyone should seek help in the way that they most, you know, would benefit from. So like, if you need a lot more psychological support, like let's get them plugged into those resources. If you're somebody who just genuinely doesn't understand the requirements, like let's make sure that you're talking to a registered dietitian and getting the support that you need from that standpoint. And if we don't need that crossover, great. Or if we need to bring everyone in, cause like it's all hands on deck, like let's bring everyone in because it's all hands on deck and we need to make sure that all of those boxes are being checked. That answer your question? Yeah. And it's really interesting. Obviously, I think, you know, as you've illustrated, yeah, it's a little, it's, it's tough, right? This is not something you can neatly categorize and say, yes, you fit in this box and you fit in that box. And though, as you were describing these broad categories, um, even, you know, in my personal experience and, you know, as a, as an athlete, you know, I, I wonder in that kind of in-between category. Like, I know I'm technically not supposed to be doing this, but I'm gonna do it anyways. I wonder how many people engage in that behavior, hope like, oh, I'm just gonna do it for a couple weeks. Or like, oh, I just wanna lose a couple pounds. Or like, I know technically, but I'll be fine for a month, you know? Uh, and then maybe they are, maybe they aren't, right? And then if it worked last, quote, worked, quote unquote, worked last time, maybe I'll do it again, you know? And it's like, you know, for runners, we, we tend to, um, we, we don't, and I love that your, your comment before about keep a log, write it down. We don't always connect what's happening contemporaneously with how we got here. And I, I go through this with my runners when they, you know, are injury going through injury stuff. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, that didn't happen overnight. It probably started, you know, a while back. But it's the same thing with these consequences of REDS or low energy availability, where it's, you know, every time that you increase your risk factors, it starts to get a little bit dicey. But I also want to, I, I, I feel for the people kind of at the in-between because it can feel like, yeah, technically, but like, what's the harm? It's just a couple of weeks. I'm sure it'll be fine. And they might have some like low grade consequences or they might start dealing with some things, but yeah, like not quite like so severe that they seek help. And I was always really, you know, in hindsight, thankful that my body put an end to some of the, the mistreatment and the underfueling very quickly. Like 
my body in some ways was not resilient to any state of low energy availability. I went from like bone injury to bone injury for a reason. And there's some people who similar to like comparing yourself to teammates, like you see somebody's behaviors and you're like, you suspect that they might be in this in between. Like, how are they still racing? How are they still training? Um, first of all, one of my, like, one of the things that I would say back to that is like, think about how much better they could be training or racing if they were fueling properly. We don't know, like they could be way better than they are right now. And then second is like the severity and the duration matter. Like if it hasn't been for super long, or if it's like kind of like in this in between where we kind of call it like subclinical or like suboptimal, um, they might not have as many of these challenges as somebody who has a very severe um, eating disorder or like pathological disordered eating or, you know, very low energy availability. Um, those things all play a role and the, the indicators kind of matter there. So um, it's, it's not nice and neat and tidy. You know, some people's bodies are super resilient, but other people's bodies will like start shutting things down before it takes away from their their bones or their performance in any way. So, you know, we might, we don't see everything, you know, we can't look at a person and, and see all their signs and symptoms. We don't know necessarily what's going on behind the scenes and what they're willing to accept before they seek help. Um, so it is definitely a challenge, I think, especially for the younger athletes to maybe see how that affects them. Um, and how that like looks on other people is really important. Talk to us about what we're learning in recent research about things like intraday deficits, um, because that is, I think, really at odds with the intermittent fasting craze that is sweeping uh, our, our nation and has been really popular for a couple of years. But yeah, talk to us about that. Yeah, it's a really interesting point, because when we are looking at low energy availability, we're calculating it based on the daily requirements. So for example, a very extreme example, you could have somebody who is eating like only two hours in the day, but they're hitting all of their requirements and they're technically not in low energy availability. But what you would categorize them as is within day energy deficit. Um, and that we're learning matters. So this is really important because like you said, there are some of these like trends and fads of like, Oh, should I do it? Should I train fasted? Should I like fast at some points of the day and not others? Well, if you are training and you have athletic goals and you want to ensure that you're supporting your health as optimally as possible, you want to not only hit your energy availability requirements for the day, but you don't want to save that up. You don't want to go through periods of time where you're not consuming enough energy at all. So these are things like two to three hour windows are often what we see for waking hours of making sure that you're getting fuel in every two to three hours and you're getting enough fuel like uh, parsed out throughout the day. So this could look something like breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, snack. Um, that might not work for everyone. So you often have to kind of work within the, the confines of somebody's schedule, um, but that's where the framework of like two to three hours is a really good benchmark. And if you have like a bigger meal and a smaller snack, or if you eat like equivalent meals throughout the day, then 
you're going to hit your benchmarks and you'll be fine. The reason why that's important though, is because within the low energy availability research, we often focused day to day, but we started to see that those people that were not fueling regularly throughout the day who might've like woken up, had something small for breakfast, gone on their training session, maybe didn't eat something right after their training session and then went about their day, got to the end of the day and were like, oh, I'm really hungry. Like they were having consequences beyond the people who were fueling regularly throughout the day. So you compare a within day energy deficit person who's has the same energy availability as somebody who's getting it throughout the day. And we're seeing that the person who doesn't hit their within day benchmarks is suffering from similar health and performance consequences that we obviously are trying to avoid as athletes and as clinicians and researchers. Um, so it's emerging. Um, I think you'll see a lot more about it within this space in the coming years and hopefully to combat some of that, that um, the trends around fasting or, you know, intermittent fasting, all of that stuff. It's, it's really not optimal for, you often hear um, people say that it's not optimal for women. It's arguably not optimal for any of the athletes that we work with. Um, so that's something that you definitely want to aim to avoid. And also talk to us about, and I know that you recently uh, authored a paper on this, low carbohydrate availability in low energy availability, because this is some really interesting stuff. And I will preface this by saying I feel vindicated because I ended up with REDS from low car- chronic low carbohydrate um, intake over the period of several years where I never got a stress fracture, I never lost my period, and I never was eating in a caloric deficit for any period of time, but I wasn't eating any carbs. Two years later, big problems. So it's a thing. <laughs> no, it, it absolutely is. And um, it's, a, I think, again, an emerging thing where you see um, – we're t- like the fad around like low carb and you know these like sports products that are now taking like sugar out of gels and drinks and you're like what are we doing like are we forgetting the basis of all of sports nutrition like the very fundamentals we're leaving at the door um and so thank you for bringing it up i think it's so important one of the things that we see with low carbohydrate availability is it can be hard to tease apart from low energy availability because again, from a very simplistic standpoint, when we look at the macronutrients that we need to hit our energy availability targets, that's going to come from carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. And the highest ratio that we need is carbohydrates. So as you can imagine, if you're not hitting your energy requirements, you're probably not getting enough of any of the macronutrients, but you're especially not going to get enough of the highest proportion of what you need. So we often see that they happen together, that those who are in a state of low energy availability are also in a state of low carbohydrate availability. And then it's also especially important because carbohydrates are our preferred source of fuel for the body, regardless of what, what activity it is, whether it's anaerobic or aerobic, carbohydrates are the most efficient for our body to use to produce energy. Um, So all of that being said, it's really important for those reasons, but then it's also important because we're finding that there's some independent or compounding effects of low carbohydrate availability, given its important role, not only in exercise, but in our body function. So 
the paper focused on uh, female athletes. And in this case, we're really concerned about things like menstrual dysfunction, iron deficiency, um, and our, our ability for our immune system to function properly. So those are some of like the key things that we look at when we're looking at carbohydrates to help us provide. Um, and I think that it's, it's one of those things where, unfortunately, it's one of the macronutrients that our population tends to be the most scared of. Um, and so now we're dealing with that additional challenge of like, how do we get individuals to fuel properly, let alone fuel properly with the correct amount of carbohydrates when they're potentially afraid of that or they're like not educated on the proper way to incorporate those carbohydrate recommendations. So something that we're seeing a lot more of, unfortunately, these days is that people are consuming an excessive amount of fiber. Um, so those fiber rich foods tend to be like carbohydrate rich foods. And what we're seeing is, okay, well, we're, we're not getting people who are eating a lot of starchy carbohydrates. The people who might be afraid of carbohydrates feel that it's safer to have fruits and vegetables, which there's absolutely benefits to getting your daily recommendation of fruits and vegetables. I'm not trying to say that that's not still true. But what I am trying to say is that people feel safe with that recommendation, so they overdo it. They over-index on high-fiber foods. And one of the things that we know that fiber does is increase satiety. And so why that's a challenge for the athletes that we're concerned with from a low energy availability lens is if you're increasing satiety and you're trying to reach this high level of energy intake to support training in your body systems, well, it's going to kind of take up room from that. Like you're going to eat a lower volume of food and feel, uh, feel satiated and then not reach for more food to reach your other macronutrient and your overall energy needs. And then in addition to the fiber concern um, is estrogen. So excess fiber impairs estrogen reabsorption, which is important for making sure that we have normal, regular menstruation. Um, and those things all kind of play into each other around this idea of like fueling for exercise with carbohydrates being the focus. Um, and when we're looking at energy availability, we can't not talk about carbohydrates as well. That's fascinating. Oh, I'm so excited to see where the research goes on this in the coming years. Cause I think, yeah, hopefully there's some good, yeah, just some good stuff that comes up more educated, no more knowledge about what is actually happening. Cause the human body is so complicated, right? That is, I think the underlying thing that a lot of people are drawn to when it comes to studying things like this, but it is also the ultimate, like, oh my good Lord, is this all complicated? <laughs> Yeah. The more questions you answer, the more questions you have. You kind of never feel satisfied with the answer. Like you find the answer and then that leads to more questions. So it's definitely interesting. And I think the way that we've approached the carbohydrate research currently is often based off of carbohydrate intake. But since carbohydrates are such a main source of fuel for exercise, we actually can shift and understand similar to we do with energy availability. Like how much energy are we taking in compared to how much energy we're expending during exercise? 
how much carbohydrates are we taking in and how much carbohydrates are we expending during exercise? So that's going to be a really important piece moving forward. Um, and there's definitely some method methodological challenges to researching that, but I think that it's well worthwhile to look into that as a, as a future avenue for researchers um, and making sure that we're not just, you know, getting or capturing their carbohydrate intake, but we're actually trying to calculate carbohydrate availability because often those terms are interchanged in the research, but really what people are talking about is carbohydrate intake. Um, all that to say is we know that low carbohydrate intake or low carbohydrate availability poses some health and performance challenges. So it's all important. And I would say capture it in whatever way you can, because that's better than not capturing it at all. But I definitely think that it's going to be an emerging field um, where we're seeing some overhaul of the methods that we're taking as far as research. And then hopefully that can better inform practice. Um, people like registered dietitians might be able to better um, meet an individual's recommendations based off of that information. And finally, talk to us about the kind of end result consequences of what REDS can do. Um, you know, like I, I agree with you. I think that a lot of runners, when they start to see performance issues, they're like, oh, okay, something's wrong now, irrespective of whatever health issues may have cropped up before then. But let's say, you know, and I also the other complicated thing is that the things that are happening inside your body, you don't always realize are happening until they become physically apparent. But talk to us about if left unchecked, where does this go? It's a really, really good point. And whether or not it's checked or unchecked, I think another piece of the puzzle that people are a little bit shy to talk about is, well, what happens for example, if you have a young athlete who was in a state of reds and corrected the issue and is no longer struggling, but they were for a period of time, depending on the severity and the duration, they're going to have short-term and long-term consequences. And that's a real big challenge for people to, to deal with, whether or not from an individual perspective or you know from a clinician um, or researcher's perspective. We often shy away from this conversation of, there is long-term impact of this condition, whether or not it's checked or unchecked. And a lot of that stems from the bone health and the impaired growth and development side of things, where if you think about it, there's only a finite amount of time where an individual is going to grow and develop and mature. And if we don't hit that window and we don't you know, hit our growth and development uh, curves, then there's going to become a time where there's not necessarily more growth and development happening. And then when we look at the bones, it's especially important because female athletes or females in general reach their peak bone mass in their young 20s. And for males, it's a little bit later. It's like mid to late 20s. And what that means is every individual has a peak amount of bone mass that they can accrue. And after that, they're just fighting off any bone loss. So you've probably heard of osteoporosis and you've probably like heard of how frail older or elderly adults bones can be, right? That's natural. That's a normal process. But what the problem becomes 
in athletes under conditions of reds is if we're having impaired bone mineral density at such a young age and we're actually bringing that peak bone mass down we're starting from an even lower point and then we're still dropping off everyone's bone mass drops off as they age and so what we're seeing is long-term impact of osteoporosis and that might seem so far in the future and we're seeing it happen earlier and earlier in athletes. Like some young adults are osteopenic or osteoporotic. Um, and osteoporosis is one of the leading causes of death in older adults. Again, something that people don't really talk about. And it's really hard when um, you have an elderly patient who suffers from a stress fracture and, or a fracture because of osteoporosis. And they require a lot of um, clinical care and they like require a caregiver and they are no longer able to support themselves physically. And so then they have a lot of like mental issues because of that, because they're no longer allowed to care for themselves. They know what they were like capable of before, and now they're no longer capable of participating in their life in the same way. And I know it feels so far in the future, but I think it's so important to talk about that because I mean, we've all been 19 years old and we're like, we'll deal with it when we're 50, 60, 70. I don't care. Like, but it's so important that we talk about it now. And I don't, I don't think that we'll ever reverse people's opinion. Like that is a common experience of like, I wish I like listened to those people when I was 20 or 30. Um, that's always going to happen. But I think that um, if we bring that into the conversation now and, and now with, you know, I think that sometimes we forget, or I do sometimes, where, you know, my grandparents, they weren't participating in sport the same way that I am. My grandmothers, you know, were through high school and college before Title IX. And so we're actually, from a research perspective, not fully aware of all of the long-term impact that REDS can have on individuals. And we have some idea based off of eating disorder research or other consequences that these older women are suffering from. But I think that the picture hasn't, you know, fully expanded. We're not actually too far away from seeing what the first women who were college athletes are as elderly adults. So um, another question left to be answered and something that's so important to keep in mind is, we know there's long-term consequence and it might take longer for some of these things to reverse for people than others, depending on things like severity or duration or magnitude of low energy availability. But regardless, we really want to keep that top of mind and use that as a motivator potentially for athletes to get better. I don't always think that athletes are motivated by that because they're so performance focused, which is why those performance consequences are so um, beneficial for athletes to kind of latch onto and use as a carrot. But I think it's worth mentioning that the health consequences can follow you, regardless of whether or not you reverse it um, or leave it checked um, or unchecked. And that is something that we need to learn more about and we need to educate people more about because. I think that, you know, the lifespan of an athlete while getting longer is still finite. Um, and the way that you participate in sport and dedicate your life to performance as an elite athlete is limited. 
Um, and we're going on to live lives after athletics that, you know, we might not be healthy. We might not be um, like supporting our long-term well-being. And I think that, you know, some of those athletes might look back and say like, was it worth it? And I would, I would hate for the answer to be no. Like I want them to be able to reach their performance goals and limit the health and performance consequences later in life. And for young girls and women to take all of the positive things that we know sport can provide and mitigate all of the negative things that it can also, you know, produce as a, as a side effect. And I'll even say, you know, for, for regular athletes, for regular active individuals, there is absolutely no performance that's worth risking your health for like none, none whatsoever. I mean, I, I don't even think elite athletes should be doing that much less, you know, those, those of us who are hoping to place third in our age group or, or, you know, um, I will kind of echo what you said about the, uh, you know, osteoporosis and osteopenia. There's a really horrible, not a horrible, but true, uh, terrifying statistic about all cause mortality. If you break your hip as an elderly person, and essentially your, your risk of all cause mortality, basically like dying from any cause, um, after fracturing your hip just skyrockets, uh, for all the reasons that it is this kind of this slippery slope. And I think that when we are going through our lives as active individuals, you know, we get really focused on, I want to qualify for Boston, or I want to break this in the 5k, or I want to do this, or I want to do that. And like you said, we forget about some of these underlying, well, what's actually, what is happening to your body as you're chasing these specific goals or engaging in these behaviors. And I love this new emerging trend about training for your old lady body or training for your, you know, old age, be strong, eat enough food, lift your weights. But I think that's obviously something that we, something we can still continue to talk more and more about. So one question I did have for you that I don't know if, uh, just I'm like, yeah, I always more questions to ask. We talked about reds interfering with, um, the initial rate of bone formation in, you know, late puberty. How does, or do you know how reds or low energy availability impacts your bone density in your thirties, forties, fifties, et cetera? Like, are you still going to, will it accelerate bone density loss? Really good question. Um, I think that there's probably more work to be done there. Um, I think oftentimes like a lot of this research is focused on college age individuals or, or younger adults. Um, that's not to say that there's not, um, the, like middle generation captured in some of the research and that would accelerate any bone loss that's already happening. Um, but potentially that's where you have a case of like, did they reach their peak? And now in their thirties, they're suffering. And then we don't know how much it might accelerate them closer to that age. I think top of mind for a lot of athletes would be reaching their peak bone mass. And then that way, we're working from the top of the mountain. And if we're accelerating down, like that's not good either. But if we can achieve peak first and then make sure that, you know, in the interim, if somebody is suffering from reds and they're experiencing some bone loss, I think that we might have a better chance of correcting it in the short term. Um, I'm not sure necessarily if we've seen enough literature on that, but I think that 
the long-term impact of not reaching your peak is likely more severe than being able to reverse it in your 30s or 40s, let's say. Um, I would love for that to be a, a question that people dive into further. And there's a lot of great bone researchers who are interested in tackling this issue. And like, can we even resolve some of that from um, like a, a drug perspective or um, all of those types of things? So I think that the, that, that space is being explored further and like what we can do to potentially correct for some of those long-term impacts is being worked on. But I think the, the overall message is that, you know, our bone is dynamic and our bone is like very responsive to under fueling. And unfortunately that comes at the cost of, you know, short and long-term impact. So, you know, the stress fractures, the bone stress injuries in the interim, but you know, our, our old lady bodies in the future, like what's going to happen to them. Um, and right now we don't have that, uh, information as far as like things that we can do to reverse it. So all we know right now is that the, that the long-term consequence is not a favorable outcome. And so that's why we want to get in front of young girls. We want to get in front of women. We want to make sure that we're not accelerating bone loss and that we're reaching our peak. Um, and that we're kind of checking all of those boxes. All right, I lied. I have one more question, and I am asking you to speculate, and you do not have to name names, but how many high-profile, I'm specifically thinking American distance runners, do you think have retired prematurely because of Reds or something similar? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, you kind of You kind of gave me runway to answer a different question where I thought that was headed, which is like, this idea of, I'm going to feature a post on it prior to the um, Olympic trials, but this idea of like how many current professional or elite runners are suffering in silence and like, don't, we don't know, we see them on the start line and you kind of assume like, oh, they're high performing. They, they're probably good. Um, and how many of them actually are suffering from this? Um, so I think, you know, it's not always what it seems in terms of, what we're looking at when we see a start line, when we see a high profile race. Um, but it's well, I'll even like, say for, I know the last Olympic trials, Jake Riley came out afterwards and was like, yeah, I totally got reds after that. Like, um, I obviously I think there's, you know, Mary Kane just, it destroyed her career, you know, but I think there is a lot of other athletes who just kind of get a lot of injuries and then fade away. Yeah. I, I think that's so true. And yeah, it's hard to speculate, but I would say that there's, there's definitely a lot of either premature retirement or, you know, I think what I, what I would speculate on is some of the athletes that you see that are performing well into like their, you know, what people call like the twilight years um, and that window's being pushed out. Like, but sometimes what you see is those women took a break and whether or not that break was just a competitive break or, you know, a full on break from, from running or you see some women who like played soccer in college or like picked up running later in life who are very successful. And so I think that it's interesting to look at that subset of individuals and compare them to people who ran throughout high school and college and in straight into a professional career where it was very intense and how they came out of that or how they, you know, were forced into retirement or kind of just like fizzled into retirement. Um, I think that, that it's hard 
to say because they might not even say it themselves that that might be the cause, but whether or not it was just like a, a overtraining type of um, results from like them just performing at such a high level for such a long time, I think that that's a very likely cause. And then I also think as far as under fueling, like there's a lot of this happening in our sport. And so you would have to imagine that it overlaps with some of the, the cause for retirement or stepping away from sport. And so like, would we see this age window improve even more if we're getting athletes that are fueling properly throughout their entire careers? Like what are people capable of um, if they are fueling for life and sport throughout the whole journey? And like, is that going to extend careers? Is that going to like allow people to retire on their own terms? Because like you said, I think sometimes you just see people reach the end in a, like in a fizzling out and then like it peters down or, you know, it just kind of fades. Um, And it's hard to say to, it's hard to stop when you're on the top of your game, but it's also probably a lot easier when you feel proud of the, of the career that you had and you know that you did everything um, and that it was on your terms rather than somebody else's. Um, So I would say, I I mean, Oh my God, I couldn't throw a number at it, but I would say that it's probably um, a contributing factor to retirement in a much stronger way than we realize, or than the athlete themselves even, even can appreciate. And, you know, for anybody who knows the state of what most professional or semi-professional runners are, you know, they're, they're not, you know, getting customized nutritional support. This isn't the NFL, right? Like you don't have a team diet. Like maybe, you know, if you run for a team or a professional team you do, or maybe your college program is like actually really good when it comes to having a dietitian on staff. But by and large, just because somebody is really fast does not necessarily mean that they're getting the support that they need. And I think it's a really big misconception that a lot of recreational runners, you know, like me have it for looking at these people who are towing the line at the Olympic trials thinking, well, they must know all of the things. And if they're telling me that they eat X, Y, Z, or they use this fuel, or they don't eat this, maybe I should do that too. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like, Just because they're doing it doesn't mean it's going to work for you or that it's necessarily working for them. You just don't know. Yeah. That you bring up such a good point. Is it working for them? Would it work for you? And there's also this line of like, sometimes what a professional athlete is doing is not health promoting. So like we can appreciate that what they're doing is very challenging and very hard, but it doesn't mean that we need to replicate it. Um, And I think that it also brings up like a really interesting point of like what resources are available. And we're in a sport where there's not, like you said, a lot of resources. Um, So there's a lot of people going about it alone and they could potentially be going about it the wrong way and not know it. And they're lacking resources and they're lacking support. That's, that's one of the biggest challenges with, with these conditions. And, you know, not only is it costly to get treatment, but it's, you know, can you get plugged into the right resources? Do you have a team available to you? Do you have doctors that can communicate with one another? Are you kind of like playing telephone, trying to figure out, you know, what's, wrong and what this doctor's saying isn't being relayed to this doctor and then there's insurance and there's all these things so I think you know to tie it all together like my my role or my piece of the puzzle is like can I help people put it all together like can I be that gap 
can I fill that gap that people are having where, you know, the translational piece isn't working for them or they're not, you know, putting the pieces together themselves and they need support advocating for themselves or they need help getting plugged into a resource. Um, they need educational tools, all of these things. Like there's so many different pieces of the puzzle and one thing could be missing for an athlete that's not missing for the other, or, you know, we might need to really overhaul what's happening and the resources that are available to some athletes. And then some of it's just tinkering, you know, some of it's just like, Oh, we need to make a little adjustment here or a little adjustment there. We need to make sure that we're staying on top of that. Um, it's a work in progress. And I think that a lot of athletes, whether recreational or professional would tell you that they don't have it all figured out. Um, and so it's one of those things where, you, you know, we can always be striving to improve whether it's, you know, our behaviors, our, our knowledge, um, all of those things, we can work towards, you know, a better future for ourselves, but then also for our teammates and our children and, you know, girls coming up in the sport. I think that that's so important to think about like, what role can you play in your circle and how can you make that better for not only yourself, but the people around you? The tides seem like they're changing, but hopefully, hopefully they'll be even better in the years to come. Mel, thank you so much for being here today. I have just been, like I said, absolutely so excited to get you on the show and talk to you. And we covered such great ground. Tell us about your work. If people aren't following the Fed Collaborative, they absolutely should be. I'll plug that absolutely everywhere. But talk to us about how people can find out what you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, my Instagram is the best way to connect with me personally. Um, so I run an educational account where I talk a lot about energy deficiency, eating disorders, um, female athlete physiology. So definitely give me a follow there. Stay connected with um, my, my most up-to-date research or what I'm up to. Um, and then globally, from a from a female athlete research perspective, um, what people can do to support and make sure that they're you know following along is if you have the opportunity to participate in research, we need participants. We couldn't do it without them. Um, and we also need funds. So you know, female athlete research is definitely underfunded, and we're underrepresented in a lot of research areas. So. Um, making sure that we can get plugged into the right resources as, as researchers and know that we're trying to answer the right questions. Um, those are all really important things. Um, from an individual standpoint, I'm, you know, in my PhD, so I'm, I'm looking to finish up in the next um, year and a half. So I'll be publishing my little heart out, writing all of the papers. Um, and so I think that you should definitely stay tuned for some, some new findings, some interesting findings that we have coming. Um, and just plug into other resources. I often, you know, share information from other researchers and other accounts who are doing really great work. Um, so that's, that's some of the best ways that people can support and stay, stay following along. I love it. Yes. If anybody has a, a line on funding for research, <laughs> yeah, that's the great. And I think as we were chatting before the episode, that's what you were saying. It's not that there isn't the desire to do research on these specific topics or try to, you know, tease out some of the issues with these questions, but it's that money is a finite resource, right? We can't, and, and the research itself can be very complex and complicated to even perform. So it's not that people are not wanting to do it. It's just that we're running into some roadblocks. Mm -hmm. And we want to answer the, the questions in the best way possible. Um, so more, more funding means 
that we can account for the physiological variations of, of female hormones. And we can make sure that we're getting the menstrual phases accurately and with the gold standard technology. And we can make sure that if we're doing this work around low energy availability, that if there's any intervention piece, like we can provide those, those resources for the participants. There's, I, I do the series on my Instagram. Um, people should check it out about where the female athletes are in research. Um, and they looked at carbohydrate studies and how carbohydrate recommendations were formed. And I, I have to take a guess on the, on the percentage, but essentially the idea is that a lot more male studies were provided all of the dietary requirements to fulfill the, the nutritional intervention than the female studies. And that's probably because a lot of things were left on the table. Um, we need a little bit more resources if we want to make sure that we're studying the female athlete body accurately. And I don't think that that's, you know, something that we should shy away from. I think that it's just something to keep in mind that I could design a better study with the, with the male body than I could with the female body with money alone. The more money I have, the better I can answer those questions and the better we can study the sex-based differences. But money is definitely a finite resource. And I think that um, if you are interested in getting involved and you're not necessarily the researcher yourself, it's, it's really interesting to pick a researcher's brain. And I do this with my teammates all the time is I'm asking them, like, what questions do you want answered? And um, how can we be of service to you? Like, as much as I want to answer these questions, I want to make sure that I'm answering questions that coaches and support staff want answered and that the athletes need answers too. So um, I think that there's definitely, the, like you said, the tides are shifting. There's this focus on translational research and it's really important for us as researchers to kind of lend ourselves to that lens and, and be an interdisciplinary team um, because the more questions that we can have answered, the more support that we can provide female athletes in the future. Well, I can't wait to see what you do in the coming years. And thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. Thank you. You're welcome. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.